Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. gap year. That teenage rite of passage. Away from the family, the freedom to explore different cultures, the great buildings and art of Europe, the food, new friends and fun, and of course the shopping. One of the better modern inventions. Except of course that it is at least 300 years old. The Grand Tour, as it was originally called in the 18th century, was redefined repurposed and renamed for later generations and markets, with considerable help from one Thomas Cook. He was the man who gave us tourism, and now thanks to him, we can all become grand tourists. So join us as we look at how those male tourists sampled life abroad, at where they travelled, stayed, and how they experienced life, and at how women got in on the act and also how the tour became available to all of us. You've made it to Paris. And the really good news is that you won't have to board a ship again for as long as two years. The bad news? Lengthy coach journeys will continue. Arrival in the fabled City of Light brought initial excitement to our travellers. Well, you're settling in for several months. Where would you live? Some travellers lodged with friends. Some stayed in ducal or princely residences. Some in hotels. We know that one traveller paid £36 per year for accommodation in Paris. That's around £4,000 these days and not outrageous for a holiday let. For those with servants, there were new problems. The fourth Earl of Chesterfield noted that my French and English servants quarrel daily and fight for want of words to abuse one another. Servants had an especially hard time on trips, in travel, their accommodation and food and transport. It was a hard way to seize the opportunity to see the world. The days sped by. There were letters of introduction to prepare, new contacts to make. For the nobility, visits to court had to be arranged. Also, cultural, educational visits. These were seen as important for those previously raised in the depths of the countryside. Meeting scientists and scholars was important for future diplomats and statesmen. Guides were hired. The Louvre, Notre Dame, the Tuileries, Versailles and Saint-Claude all visited, with longer trips to see the Loire Chateau. Some travellers took to it all so enthusiastically that concern grew at home. Trinity College in Dublin was founded in 1593, encouraged apparently by the view that youth travelled to France, Spain and Italy and attended foreign universities, becoming infected with popery. French ideas 
fashion and style were important, and considerable time was devoted to study of fencing, riding, dancing, and courtly behaviour. All were vital. Many young travellers' experiences of dancing and courtly behaviour was limited to country dances at home, which were great fun, hearty, and sometimes rigged so that you could dance with a girl of your choice. All very different to the stately court dance of the courant, with its complex steps and stylized movements. The young traveller soon found out just how much he had to learn before any family contacts could be used for an introduction to the French royal family or even an ambassador. The unfortunate British envoys suffered most, having their homes treated as larders or residences by the young tourists. It was also hard work for tutors, attempting to instill classical literature, art and the new Greco-Roman fad in students who were often keener on collecting holiday snaps, essentially drawings by artists such as Rigaud of the famous sites which they had visited. The native French veered between fascination and bemusement at the attitudes of the young tourists, from their clothes to their artistic appreciation. Cruelly funny cartoons from the 1800s display the incomprehensible British view that clothes were intended primarily to keep the wearer warm. Elegant Parisiennes averted their eyes from tourists in clashing capes and outdated bonnets, clutching printed visitor guides and unstylish dogs. Well, you couldn't possibly leave poor old Rover behind. But Rover and his pals would continue to cause chaos falling off mountain peaks into ravines, being eaten by wolves and getting into fights with the local chiens. Paris was romantically hailed as the city of love and folly and cynically observed to be the theatre of more vice than any other city in the world, drunkenness excepted. The young travellers were keen to see if this was the case. Theatres were ideal places for pickups as well. Prostitutes prowled the corridors. But even if our young travellers had poor seduction skills, well, there were plenty of enthusiastic amateurs around, some in the fetching shapes of bored and wealthy wives. The memoirs of one French duke in the 1700s recounts his fascination with one young Englishman being drawn gently along the boulevard in a superb carriage in the arms of an opera dancer. The French were enraptured at the sight of young noblemen from England showing fondness for women somewhat advanced in life. Translation, in their late twenties or perhaps even thirty. It was a long way from their rural English homes where gentlemen in billiards or smoking rooms might mention a friend who had kept a woman in some nearby town and a very long way from the young traveller's probable future bride, an innocent, quiet, pure young girl 
with a dowry of several thousand acres. But the future came faster on the Grand Tour. The few months in Paris were soon over and travel called. The Alps and then Italy were on the list. How long would you stay? Would you go via the Roman or Venetian carnival? Would you attend a German university for a term or take in the Low Countries with some time in Amsterdam and learn about its golden age? There were also decisions to be made about the route. Some travellers refused to board a boat again unless to go home and opted to cross the Alps to get to Italy. How high could mountains be anyway? Some travellers went down the Rhone Valley to Marseille and crossed by sea into Genoa. There was no such route for the Grand Tour. Usually, travellers started in Paris and moved south down to cross the Alps or take the sea route to get to Milan and then on to Venice. Or they might travel south to Florence. Rome came next and was often accompanied by a short trip to Naples to visit the newly discovered finds at Heraculum. Some travellers then sailed home. Others retraced the route to the Alps. Then they visited Heidelberg, perhaps for a term, followed by the Low Countries and the pretty towns of Delft, Harlem and the ancient University of Leiden. All were within easy reach of Amsterdam, famed for its art, its architecture and design with canals and a fixture on the Grand Tour. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. Although there were exceptions, it is safe to say that overall, hard beds and dodgy food were all too common. It was generally agreed that English roads were superior, as was French food. One titled lady gave up the struggle and simply slept on a camp bed in her coach, eating any available and probably stale in food. She followed the attitudes of many. They were on manoeuvres. No pomp and circumstance, no silver service or cap doffing. Equipped with some useful advice from earlier travel memoirs, it was a matter of keeping calm and bearing in mind such tips as the roads are dangerous, the inns wretched, the ships unseaworthy and the maps unreliable. Never journey without something to eat in your pocket, if only to throw to dogs when attacked by them. Have a guinea handy as a suitable tip for a servant.
Wine is inflammatory to the system. Avoid oil and salad. Be prepared for the unexpected. Reveners or natives who having sold their clothes for alcohol are to be found lying dead naked in the snow. But above all, bring along an iron fastener to secure the bedroom door and a letter to the British ambassador. But the scenery was beautiful, the Seine, en route to Dijon, then the Rhone from Lyon for the crossing of the Mount Cenis Pass. At just under 7,000 feet, 2,000 meters approximately, it had mountain peaks of over 8,000 feet. Today, it is an amazing drive with hairpin bends and is also featured in the Giro d'Italia and Tour de France cycle races. But back in the 1700s, many, if not most travelers, had no idea of the conditions. They probably traveled no further than Scotland, if that far, where Ben Nevis stands at 4,400 feet, and they had never even seen high peaks. Many tourists admitted to being frightened during the typical good ascent and bad descent. Thomas Gray noted that Mont Saini carries the permission mountains have of being frightful rather too far with too much danger to give one time to reflect upon their beauties. Well, that was unsurprising. The travelers were crossing snow-tipped peaks in bath chairs. Their coach, if they had one, had been carefully taken apart and packed. They would all be in the hands of the highly regarded chairman of Montseigny, hailed as the best in the Alps. Their travel conveyance resembled an open sedan chair, supported by two chairmen, open to the elements. On average, the climb took eight days in groups of four, six and eight bearers, with the coach carried on the backs of the bearers. Byron, who else, has left us his memoirs of crossing the Alps. I heard avalanches falling every five minutes nearby as if God was putting the devil down from heaven with snowballs. Clouds rose from the opposite valley, curling up perpendicular precipices, like the foam of the ocean of hell during a spring tide. Most did make it to their destinations, but sadly, not all dogs accompanied them. Some obedient dogs did make it, but others plummeted over edges broke their legs or were killed and eaten by wolves. After a few days R&R in Turin, and perhaps Milan, you made your way onwards to either Venice or Florence. Florence was as popular with 18th century visitors as it is with today's sightseers. Its terracotta tiled domes its palazzos and splendid spires still stand against the skyline. This city was at the heart of the Renaissance and remains so. Ever linked to the banking family of the Medici, it retains its splendid palazzos and squares on the banks of the Arno. 
Runaleshi's Duomo still stands at its heart. The Academia holds masterpieces by Botticelli and Michelangelo. The Uffizi still has design influencing creations by Giotto and Caravaggio. The Ponte Vecchio Bridge still has its shops and Da Vinci's birthplace remains a tourist must-see. In the surrounding countryside, the vineyards are still heavy with seasonal grapes and visitors can still walk up to Fiesole for views enjoyed by earlier grand tourists. But too soon for some, it was time to take the route to the Eternal City for a lengthy stay. Rome was all about ruins, or so it must have seemed to our tourists. There were the major sites, Colosseum and the Pantheon, two buildings which changed our ideas on architecture. Then there were the famous baths of Caracalla and Diocletian, the remains of the Forum and the great religious icons, St. Peter's, the Sistine Chapel and Castel San Angelo were also on the list. For some, of course, the high point, indeed the point, was to enjoy the Roman carnival. It dated from pagan times and their festivals. By the mid 15th century, the carnival, as grand tourists would know it, was well established. It ran over eight days up to Mardi Gras. Laws around public order could be broken during that time fun of all sorts prevailed. However, in our era, the popular bullfights, duels and jousting might raise a few eyebrows. So might some of the popular races with participants, including donkeys, children, the elderly and Jews. Visitors saw some of these as rather odd, in fact, bizarre. However, the Roman carnival offered a license for fun and games, which sometimes involved danger. The Berber horse race with descendants of the famous strong-willed powerful horses was run on the lengthy Via del Corso and was hugely popular with accidents caused by over-enthusiastic spectators running out onto the course. The Shrove Tuesday, Senza Moccolo, Seize the Candles, was one of the highlights. That was when the crowds attempted good-humouredly to put out each other's candles. Many held aloft on sticks. It was the last chance before Easter to enjoy license and silliness, just be foolish and mix with strangers, with great good humour. Non-participants enjoyed the fun from their balconies, or carriages. Cardinal Gores also enjoyed the famous firework display at the Castel San Angelo, complete with rockets. It produced a splendid display with the spinning girandola. You are now halfway through the Grand Tour. After a possible short visit to Naples and Vesuvius and the recently discovered ruins of Heraculum, you could retrace your steps back to Northern Europe. For some, of course, the Venetian Carnival had been from the start of the trip a must-see, even if it took a year or so to get there. To build a city where it is impossible to build a city 
is madness in itself. But to build there one of the most elegant and grandest of cities is the madness of genius. Whether you were a mature, conservative art lover, a jaded, experienced traveler, a youthful seeker of the ultimate party, Venice had something for you. La Serenissima was the high point of the grand tour for many. An island city driven by wealthy merchants, its palazzos blazed light out over the Grand Canal. Art, music, architecture, romance, history, it was everywhere. From the Piazzo San Marco and the Doge's Palace to the Rialto Bridge and Arsenale. Music and beauty were celebrated here. On Sundays, wealthy men displayed their beautiful, well-read and cultivated mistresses. In the streets and in the strolls over the, the, the Rialto Bridge. This was a city where prostitutes earned more than skilled workmen. A woman's face really could be her fortune. As Byron noted in Venice, the nobility had a habit of marrying with singers and dancers. Beauty was a currency, even with the gondoliers. They sang under the Grand Canal balconies of the current favourites who tossed down messages, nosegays and keepsakes. Venice was a 24-hour celebration, from the acrobats, fire-eaters and punch-and-duty shows in the squares and the palazzos, to the receptions, the moonlit meetings in covered gondolas in the city's lagoon, where lanterns bobbed in the night sky as the gondolier serenaded the occupants. The Venetians also understood PR. Canaletto painted the scenes for the record and adornment of international walls, and Vivaldi provided the soundtrack at the Fenice Opera House. It is said that Venice shone brightest just before the end of its era, which came in 1797 after the French Revolution. But first, of course, came fun and the carnival provided a chance and considerable license, thanks to the Venetian masks, which have remained a trademark of the city ever since. These offered complete discretion and cover all the way through the fun, flirtatious behavior, celebration, amusement, and transgression of the carnival and the breaking of its rules and codes. It is almost impossible for us to understand the codes which covered social life and behaviour in those days. You moved, socialised with and married people from your own social background. Full masks removed all such constraints and gave complete anonymity if you wished. But of course, it was not just about your background. It was also about your physical appearance. Those who were judged plain, ugly or infirm could literally adopt a mask of whoever they wanted to be. They could behave exactly as they wanted to behave. From the puppet theatres and the tightrope walkers 
to the acrobats and courtesans, masks allowed license. The best known included the bauta, the full face masks worn by the Venetian nobles, the merchants and the great millords. They were centered around black. There was a tricorn hat and mantle veil in black with a white mask in contrast. A moretta was an oval strapless mask worn by ladies, usually made of black velvet. It had a button on one side and was held by the wearer in her teeth. This was a mask for people who wished their looks to speak louder than they could. Medico de la Pesta masks are the ones that we all instantly recognized with their long nose or beak-like face, representing the plague doctor's outfit. Sinister and dangerous. Gyanya, as in cat's meow, were the cat face masks. These were often worn by gay men. In the 1500s, it was discovered that no one could be convicted of soliciting whilst naked. Gay men were aware that they would face hanging and burning if they were convicted. However, masked, they became so successful at attracting partners that the local prostitutes found that they were having cash flow problems. They had a word with the local bishop, Cantoni, and the result? The prostitutes were allowed to solicit naked to the waist, many from their windows. Nah, that's Venice for you. The Harlequin mask included diamonds of red, blue and yellow forms. They're the ones with their roots in the Commedia dell'arte and the Harlequin, the cunning buffoon noted for his costume and his black half mask. The Columbina was the mask worn by the saucy, clever servant who knew how to get on and was a good flirt. Another Commedia dell'arte character, her half mask of gold or silver is often decorated with ribbons, gems and feathers. Dama is the lady's mask and remains very popular to this day. A full-faced female plain mask it is often gilded and be feathered or bejeweled and sometimes coloured or decorated with scarves or drapery to match with the chosen costume. Carnevale was a time for excess, with Byron on hand to record it. He attended a masked ball at the Fenice. It was a fine sight. The theatre illuminated and all the world buffooning. I had my box full of visitors, masks of all kinds. And afterwards, as is the custom, I went down to Promenade the Pit, which was boarded over well with the stage. All the virtue and vice were there. This sort of thing, night after night, these six weeks, besides operas, Ridottos, parties, uh, the devil knows what. Lights blazed in the palazzo windows. Criuti, Ariani, Cadoro palazzos all enjoyed celebration and entertainment. 
opera played at several of the great opera houses. The city celebrated life itself. Follow that if you can. And one ceremony did. In celebration of the city's power and wealth thanks to the sea, the Festa della Senza revived the tradition of the old Venetian Republic of celebrating the marriage of the city and the sea. The Doge, after a special blessing, led a procession of boats into the Adriatic Sea and dropped a symbolic gold ring into the lagoon each year on Ascension Day. The ceremony grew and became ever more magnificent with a splendid state barge linked to all the other boats and gondolas which were on the water to give the full carnival atmosphere. Carnivale ended in 1797 with the invasion of Napoleon and was merely a colourful memory for years with just a few private gatherings. But after almost 200 years, it returned to its rightful place. Well, you just can't keep a really good carnival down. In 1979, helped by the promotion of the Italian Tourist Board, it is again an international success, with emphasis on the original design and work of the masks, with annual prizes awarded. So why not join us next time as we conclude our visit to the world of the Grand Tour and take a look at how it has affected our own opportunities for travel. We'll take a trip to Heidelberg, where the beer-loving students at this ancient university had their own jail. Those guys obviously knew how to party. We'll move on to the Low Countries and discover just how the Dutch got their skates on for canal transport. And we'll look at how the Grand Tour affected our own lives to this day. In the chances to travel, study abroad, and generally learn about different cultures. We look at how it influenced hospitality and what we eat, how we decorate our homes and the business opportunities that it created. Plus, who were the early grand tourists and how did women get in on the act? Join us to find out. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.